I want to thank our music team once again, both the worship leaders and the special music. That was beautiful. And uh, Sarah, Jeremy, Emma, Connor, if you guys put out an album anytime soon, please let me know. I will be right there to buy it. Well, it has been quite a week, church. And I have prepared a sermon on a topic that I think is critically important to all of us. And I will be delivering that sermon But I would be remiss to not at least acknowledge what has happened in our country these past four days. And simply said, it is heartbreaking. All of it. And when I look at the life and teachings of Jesus, I realize that, you know, it is okay to not have all of the answers. And it is okay to not have all the explanations or to pick sides but it is not okay to be without compassion. And it is not okay to be without care, and it is not okay to be without love. And it should be the church who is on the front lines of bringing grace and peace to our communities at a time when they are clearly thirsting for that. It was Billy Graham who said, it is the Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, and my job to love. And so I pray that through this, it is the followers of Jesus who are recognized for how they brought harmony to our nation during a period of great confusion. And so before we begin, I'm just going to have a short prayer right now for our country. Lord, this has been a difficult week. And frankly, we are startled, we are concerned, And frankly, Lord, aren't quite sure what to do. But as those whom you have called salt and light to a hurting earth, we pray that you will instruct us on how to be just that, the hands and feet of Jesus. Your servants are listening, Lord. Amen. Well, on a happier note, today is communion. And I love communion. I think it's one of the best parts about being a Christian is celebrating communion together. Somebody once asked me if I knew why it was that only bread and wine were served at Jesus' Last Supper. I said, I I didn't. And they said, well, you see, it's because it was a potluck and only men were invited. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm looking forward to participating in this service as a church family today, and I am extremely grateful to Jesus for the new covenant. But before we do that, I would like for us to look together at some famous last words. Do you know, off the top of your head, the famous last words of anybody? Maybe some of these will ring a bell for you. As Benjamin Franklin lay dying at the age of 84, his daughter told him to change position in bed so he could breathe more easily. Franklin's last words were, a dying man can do nothing easy. Sir Winston Churchill's last words were, I'm bored with it all. (laughs) Murderer James W. Rogers was put in front of a firing squad in Utah and asked if he had a last request. His final words, bring me a bulletproof vest. (laughs) Leonardo da Vinci said, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. I always did feel like the Mona Lisa was lacking just a bit. (laughs) 
Marie Antoinette stepped on her executioner's foot on her way to the guillotine. Her last words, pardonne-moi, Mansour. George Orwell's last written words were, at 50, everyone has the face he deserves. (laughs) Orwell passed away at 46. Nostradamus appropriately predicted, tomorrow at sunrise, I shall no longer be here. When Harriet Tubman was dying in 1913, she gathered her family around and they sang together her last words, swing low, sweet chariot. When Beethoven died, some say his final words were, I will hear in heaven. Writer T.S. Eliot was only able to whisper one word as he died, Valerie, the name of his wife. And surgeon Joseph Henry Green was checking his own pulse as he lay dying. His last word stopped. (laughs) Clearly, some last words are trivial and unexpected, while others serve as the final moment of purpose and poignancy in a person's life. Perhaps my favorite are the final public words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was speaking in Memphis in support of sanitation workers who were on strike. And this took place less than 24 hours before his assassination. His closing remarks, like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I have seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, But I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Famous last words. Do you know the famous last words of Jesus? Today we celebrate the Last Supper, the commencement to his concluding days with his disciples. And we remember his instruction to do this in remembrance of him. And as I said, I love the communion service. But could it be that what he truly wanted us to do in his memory, even more than this beautiful ceremony, is to practice the humble and servant lifestyle that he proclaimed that night. His final words continued to the cross, where Jesus conveyed his heart of forgiveness, the pain he bore in taking upon our sins, and that triumphant cry of, it is finished. But he wasn't done then either, because Jesus resurrected. Spent an additional 40 days with his followers, but then, before ascending back to heaven, he gathered them all together for one last message, his famous last words. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We receive a form of this instruction in all the Gospels. And in Acts, Luke includes Jesus' promise to his disciples of power 
when the Holy Spirit makes its anticipated arrival. We call it the Great Commission. The everlasting charge for the followers of Jesus to go out and share the good news with those around us. And so I have a question for all of you. How is that going? Pretty well? Maybe a little slower than you would care to admit? Well, in case your faith-sharing quota has been down a little bit, I figured we'd get inspired together to pick it back up again. And so, here is some motivation. Here at the National Institute for Student Ministries, we've discovered a new method of evangelism that is shaking the very foundation of our thinking. It may appear unorthodox, but frankly, we're shocked with the results. We're amazed at this revolutionary idea, especially designed to boost student evangelism. Why did I want to be the evangelism linebacker? Well, let me put it to you like this. Yeah, baby! Next time I'm going to hit you so hard, you're going to flight. NASA's going to think I didn't launch a satellite. You see, as a fish was created to swim in water, as a bird was created to fly, I was created to knock people out who don't evangelize. The evangelism linebacker deals directly with a variety of students' fears associated with sharing their faith. All right, it's all you. Whose house has got your name on it? I'm not ready yet. What makes you think I'm ready, though? Fear of rejection, for example. Let me talk to you about fear. Fourth and one, Jerry Rice, what you gonna do? That don't compare to fourth and one in eternity. It doesn't matter who rejects us because we're always accepted by Christ. God loves you. Get off the flow and go door to door. Can we talk to you for a minute? I'm a lover, not a fighter, baby. He loves you, but it might hurt. Sometimes I'll blow you up, but it's because I love you. Yeah, but just because I'm a Christian doesn't mean I need to be out sharing my faith. I mean, ah! Don't you run from me! You can't escape my grasp! D. Gray will throw you in the trash! Thanks to the evangelism linebacker, campus evangelism nationwide is up 87%. Ah! Hey, I can't go to the outreach today. I got, I just got some more important things I got to do. Uh-huh. Hey, man, give me a break. I went to church on Sunday. I got to go. Selfishness? The world needs a message. For God to love the world, he wants to communicate it through you. If you procrastinate, you will open up the gate to a beatdown. Give me that phone, boy. When I see selfishness, it is my job to blow them up. That's what I do. I blow them up so that they can get their eyes off of self and look at Christ, the prize. What's up, baby girl? Nah, I'm busy. We're intrigued as the linebacker is particularly effective in infiltrating centers of cultural and intellectual exchange. Here you go. Here's your double cappuccino latte mocha with a twist. Not too hot, not too cold. Perfect for you. Anyway, man, did you hear that talk from that guy the other night? Oh, I know. Like, we were supposed to be sharing our faith with, like, coffee shop. Woo! Woo! Shut out in a coffee shop, baby! You next! It's unlikely that the recent decline in coffee sales has anything to do with our program. Pride comes before the fall. That's Old Testament. Old Testament, you know this. Thanks for the coffee, Darren. Hey, you're welcome. Have a nice day. Your mama raised you better than this boy. Don't let me blow you up no more. 
You see, I think it's fitting because when people have pride, that they're too prideful to share their faith, what I do is I knocks the pride out of them. What I would like to communicate to my brothers and sisters is this. When you least expect it, around the corner, perhaps even under your bed, I can be in a phone wire. I can be everywhere and just know that I'm always watching. Ready to lay the boom on you, baby. Booyah! Ouch. Are you ready for game day? Well, is everybody inspired to go out and evangelize now? Here's the truth, church. We are called to share the love of God and his message of grace with the world. But how on earth do we do that? in a world that makes it so difficult to evangelize. Some of you have likely heard of Eugene Peterson. He's a great writer and thinker. He wrote the message paraphrase of the Bible. And he writes about growing up in a Christian home, but being picked as the victim of a second grade bully named Garrison Johns. Eugene writes, I had been prepared for the wider world of neighborhood and school by memorizing bless those who persecute you and turn the other cheek. I don't know how Garrison Johns knew that about me. Some sixth sense bullies have, I suppose. Most afternoons after school, he would catch me and beat me up. He also found that I was a Christian and taunted me with Jesus' sissy. I arrived home most days bruised and humiliated. My mother told me this had always been the way of Christians in the world and that I had better get used to it. She also said I was supposed to pray for him. One day, I was with seven or eight friends when Garrison caught up with us in the afternoon and started jabbing me. That's when it happened. Something snapped. For a moment, the Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness, and I grabbed Garrison. To my surprise and his, I was stronger than he was. I wrestled him to the ground, sat on his chest, pinned his arms to the ground with my knees, and he was helpless at my mercy. It was too good to be true. I hit him in the face with my fists. It felt good, and I hit him again. Blood spurted from his nose, a lovely crimson in the snow. This is Eugene Peterson, the guy who wrote the Bible. I said to Garrison, say uncle. He wouldn't say it. I hit him again, more blood. Then my Christian training reasserted itself. I said, say I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. He wouldn't say it. I hit him again, more blood. I tried again, say I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And he said it. Garrison Johns was my first Christian convert. (laughs) And we laugh. But oftentimes, our own methods of ministry are not much better. Pastor John introduced me last time by saying that we like opposing baseball teams, which is true. He likes the LA Dodgers. I like the San Francisco Giants. And Pastor John is not here this morning, so there's really no point in me acknowledging the fact that the San Francisco Giants have won three World Series championships since I became an adult, (laughs) while the LA Dodgers have won zero championships since I became alive. But he's not here, so I'm not going to say that. But during one of those World Series victories, I noticed something funny. All game, there had been nothing behind the umpire. But then just before the final pitch, the one that would be showed over and over again on the news stations, somebody held up a sign, bright neon, that said John 3.16. And then a strike three was called and I began to celebrate. I, I also was thinking about that sign. Is that the way that we're supposed to minister to people? 
We see it all the time. I like to call it religious demonstration. Uh, Evangelizing through some exhibit that is both religious and impersonal. I saw this man standing in Times Square a few years back at one of the busiest street corners in the world. Religious demonstration. In May, I went to Washington, D.C., and I saw this truck painted with, Jesus said, repent or perish, and the wages of sin is death. Here on the West Coast, we have it as well. At Balboa Park in San Diego, I took a photo of these guys. The sign on the right says, eternal life is in Jesus. The sign on the left says, God destroys all who forsake him. Or when I was walking out of Target, and I saw a young man with a Bible in his hand yelling at families as they walked in about their need to repent. And you know, it was interesting Because I didn't see any families in that parking lot getting on their knees and surrendering to Jesus in that moment. You know what they were doing? Walking a little faster, avoiding eye contact with him. Some began verbally arguing with him. They were getting upset. And that's largely the problem with religious demonstration. While it usually comes from very good intentions, it almost always does more harm than good. Religious demonstration was even evident among the disciples, the leading example being a pair of brothers named James and John that Jesus called out of a boat. And the Bible, it's interesting, it says as soon as Jesus calls them, they immediately got out, left dad behind, and followed Jesus. They have some passion. They have some fire. And Jesus acknowledged that later when he gave them a nickname. Uh, It says that he was talking with Simon. He says, Simon, you're my rock. I'm going to call you Peter. And that's what Peter means. Petros in Greek, Cephas or Kepha in Aramaic, all of it means rock. Well, then he looks at James and John. And he says, you boys have some passion. And you're a bit hot-tempered. I'm going to call you Boanerges. means sons of thunder. And they're just standing there, not sure if they were just complimented or insulted, but that's the name they received, and it stuck. And they lived up to it. One particular example occurred as Jesus is making his final trek to Jerusalem. The shortest route from Galilee to Judea was through the hills of Samaria. But most Jews avoided that route, though Jesus is not like most Jews. And so he sends James and John ahead to prepare the way for for him and for everybody else. He tells them to prepare a place for them to stay that night, to spread the word that he was coming. But before Jesus makes it there, James and John return And they are fuming. They've got veins popping out of their necks, smoke coming out of their ears. They're mad. And Jesus has seen this before, and so he tries to calm them. Okay, okay, take deep breaths. James and John, sons of thunder, tell me what's wrong. What happened? And they both begin yelling at the same time about how those Samaritans were unwelcoming. They were insulting. They were rude and ungrateful. But they've got the perfect solution with Mount Carmel sitting in the background, the site of the famous standoff between Elijah and the prophets of Baal? Well, this is what it says. When the disciples, James and John, saw that they did not welcome him, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Because that seems like a logical response, right? Make a big public display that hurts a lot of people and doesn't help the problem. Religious demonstration. Jesus rebukes them for this idea. And it says they simply went to another village. 
Jesus then tells his disciples that one day they will judge from 12 thrones and receive a hundred times as much as they have left behind. And the disciples are ecstatic to hear this. They begin celebrating like, I don't know, a team that has won three World Series in the last six years. They say, 12 thrones? A hundred times? Judgment? Completely ignoring the last part of what Jesus said, which is that, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And do you know who was more excited about it than anybody? James and John. And the way we know that is that the first thing these big, tough, hot-headed sons of thunder do is tell their mommy. (laughs) And she does what mommies are really good at. She talks to the teacher on behalf of her precious babies. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. For these guys, having two of the 12 thrones wasn't good enough. They needed the best two. And so Jesus calls them all together and he makes his point. Whoever wants to become great among you, oh, the disciples' ears perk up, yeah? Must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, the disciples see now that their arguments over who will have the best seats, who is his favorite, they're all pointless. Because the greatest among them decided he would become a servant. It's the same point he was going to make at the Last Supper when he washed their feet. And it's the same point he makes to you and to me. Finally, it's connected for the disciples and it only took three and a half years. Unfortunately, it's taken me quite a while to learn the same lesson. It's just so much easier to be a son of thunder than to be a son of light, isn't it? But what about the Great Commission? How do we most effectively minister to our community in a rapidly changing world? You know, unfortunately, today's culture does not respond quite the same to the older methods of evangelism. And it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with those, and it doesn't mean that some good cannot still come from those. It just means that culture is not stagnant. And Jesus understood this. He knew we have to consider our culture whenever we convey our message. That's why he told parables to teach spiritual truths. Had Jesus been ministering 800 miles across the Mediterranean in Athens, he probably would have used more philosophy and less childish stories. Had Jesus been ministering in Southern California instead of Palestine, I doubt he would have compared the kingdom of heaven to a mustard seed. He probably would have said the kingdom of heaven is like a wave that you can barely see off in the distance from the beach but eventually grows 10 feet high. Or the kingdom of heaven is like the 91 freeway, which starts with just a few cars, but eventually grows to, I don't think you compare heaven to the 91 freeway, but he knew that you have to consider your culture when you convey your message. And for us today, in today's fast-paced, self-focused, never enough time in the day for you or for anybody else culture that we are living in, the language that is most effective for ministry is personal. We have gone from a social age to a social media age. 
where all it takes to maintain a friendship is to follow or send a friend request to somebody. I don't need to know your birthdays. I have an app that will tell me. I don't need to call you and find out how things are going. I'll just wait for your photos online. Do you remember the day when email became a thing? Your computer would audibly announce to you, you've got mail. And we would all (gasps) rush to sign into our inbox and find out who emailed us. Never mind what was in the mailbox outside. But nowadays, if our computers still did that, they'd never be quiet. But if we get a handwritten personal letter from somebody in the mailbox, now that's special. Church, it has never meant more to give somebody personal attention than it does today. And we have to consider that when we do ministry. But here's the caveat. That takes more time. That takes more effort. That takes more investment. In 1960, Joseph Bailey wrote a short story called The Gospel Blimp, which directly deals with this. I highly encourage all of you to read it. It costs $2 online. It takes about one hour to read. It's just a short story, but it's brilliant. He said this in the epilogue. Technical organizational means have one enormous lack, a human heart. They may multiply a voice 10,000 times, but it remains only a voice. The great period of Christian witness was the half century after Pentecost, AD 30. Those were the days when kings and slaves and priests heard about Jesus Christ from living witnesses. So did a lot of ordinary people. During that generation, every part of the Roman Empire was penetrated, and places as distant as India were even reached, according to tradition. This occurred during a period of technical barrenness, for Christians then had none of our modern means for spreading the gospel. The printing press was not yet invented. Radio and television were 20 centuries distant. But those were the days when Christians shook the world. Ministry today is also most effective when it is self-sacrificing. It's interesting. Our culture has become so numb to religious messages and productions that our revolutionary message has frankly become blasé to a lot of people. Tell somebody that Jesus loves them and they may roll their eyes. But show somebody that Jesus loves them and you will have their attention. We're also self-absorbed that nobody ever expects a person today to stand in the midst of this world and somehow put themselves aside to serve the weak, to reach out to the broken, to love the marginalized. That makes people take notice. And to concern ourselves with somebody's problems instead of our own agenda Discovering what they need and then working to fulfill it. It's true ministry. Finally, ministry today is most effective when it is the result of our relationship with Jesus. Simply said, any other motive is misplaced. C.S. Lewis said, There have been some who were so occupied in spreading Christianity that they never gave a thought to Christ. And a female writer I especially appreciate said, the last rays of merciful light, the last message, some might even say the famous last words of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. The children of God are to manifest his glory. In their own life and character, they are to reveal what the grace of God has done for them. So before we seek to move the world and change a life, We should sit still with Jesus and let him change ours. Personal, self-sacrificing, the result of a relationship with Jesus. 
With these as our guidelines, we should all decide who it is God has put us in position to help and how we will choose to do it. Then the Great Commission becomes the Great Co-Mission. Us and God working together to make disciples, to become servants like he preached at the Last Supper, and to fulfill those famous last words. Well, now it's time for the main event. We are going to go into our communion service. God bless you.